Elrod, happy Monday. How you doing? Easy, I am. Um, well, I'm doing well. I've had a really busy day, but I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. We had a crazy week last week, um, and uh, we are kicking this week off, and it's Monday, uh, October 7th, and we're kicking this week off with a very special guest, a friend of yours and mine, Liz Smith, who is the senior strategist for Mayor Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Liz, welcome to the Electables. It's fantastic to have you. Thank you for having me, guys. Um, and technically, I'm his senior advisor on communications, but I'll take okay. that. I'll take that title too. We're promoting you today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, it's it's all about Liz Smith today. Liz, we are so happy to have you on, especially as a female um, leading political operative, Democratic operative who's worked on so many campaigns. So I'm just going to launch this off here. Um, you know, you've worked on Barack Obama's campaign. You've worked on numerous statewide campaigns, worked for Martin O'Malley in 2016. How does this, how does working for Mayor Pete compare to those past experiences, those past campaigns that you've worked on? And if it's different, how is it different? Like, just give us a a snapshot of, of, you know, how, how your campaign, how this campaign is different from your previous experiences and really what motivated you to go out and work for Mayor Pete? Because you have been a giant promoter of Pete Buttigieg since well before he ran for the president, when he ran for DNC chair. So I think we can sort of talk us through um, how this campaign is different and, of course, why you wanted to go work for Mayor Pete. Sure. Um, so I've worked for Pete now for close to three years. Uh, I He first hired me in late December 2016 to be on his team for uh, when he was running for DNC chair. Um, but you know, to answer your question, my role with him is completely different from anything I've ever had on a campaign before. Um, I sort of see my role as I'm his chief communication staffer. So I work directly overseeing, you know, our press team and strategy. I run our debate prep. But really, my role on the campaign is sort of to be the keeper of the brand and the message. So I work with everyone from our ad makers to our speechwriter to our press and policy teams and even our political teams just to make sure that everything that we're pumping out there is sort of on brand and something that um, that Pete believes in and Pete would have said a year ago before he was running for president. And you guys know this. Um, sometimes these campaigns can sort of drift from who the candidate actually is and what they believe in because of all the staff that you bring in. So what I try to do is keep it very close to who he is and authentic to who he is. And um, he has definitely empowered me to to do that, but also to be the person who's suggesting Gonzo ideas and to suggest creative different ideas for how he can uh, break out in a 20-way primary. Um, but definitely, like, look, my, my role has evolved over time. Uh, for a long time, before he started running for president, I was effectively his only political staffer. So I did everything from, you know, writing press releases to getting him coffee to booking interviews and staffing them. And even when he launched his campaign, I was one of three or four paid staffers at the time. So back then in January, I was doing the work that, you know, probably would fall to interns these days. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And, it, and you know what? It's, it's a very unique position for me, too, because I think you guys understand this. Um, generally, when you go to work for someone who is going to run for president, there's someone who has accumulated dozens and or even hundreds of former staffers over the years. Uh, they have extensive experience with the media. And for good or for bad, they've developed a lot of habits. Um, and earn some battle scars and wounds that I won't ever be able to heal. Uh, but with Pete, I got in very, very early. So um, mm-hmm. I've been able to, you know, one, it means I have a seat at the table, um, and I'm empowered to make decisions and uh, help guide the strategy of the campaign. Um, it means that I also have a, you know, extremely close relationship with him. Um but it means that I get to be a part of, of really all the great parts of this campaign and, and everything from you know, the moment of the town hall where he broke through to, to the debates, to going on the road with him. Um, and now even the craziest thing is I've started headlining fundraisers for him and going out and serving as a surrogate for him, which is totally crazy. Nothing I ever saw um, happening. Nothing I ever anticipated I love, happening. I love and, that you're a surrogate for him and you're such a <laughs> surrogate for him. We had, yeah, my first, the first time I did it was recently in D.C. and we had about 170 people turn out across two wow. events. And later this month, I'm going to Key West uh, to do a fun, fundraiser or two for him there and then to Boston. So I really have sort of a hybrid role, but it's, it's cool. It's a role I think I'd always wanted to have when I was working in politics. I didn't think it existed. I, I definitely didn't think it existed for women. Um, but it's sort of a role that I was born to have. And I mean, I just love it. I love it. And I love working for Pete. Hey, Liz, um, talk to us about the moment when you knew something had shifted. Um, you know, I, I worked for Howard Dean in 2004 and, you know, he was one of, he was in some ways like Mayor Pete, he came out of nowhere and then sort of hit this like real, real momentum. Um, and I'm just curious, when did you know, when did you feel that something had changed in the campaign? So the moment when everything changed was definitely the CNN town hall in early March. Um, overnight, uh, we were able to meet the donor threshold, the 65,000 donor threshold to make the debates. Um, overnight, we blew through our you know quarterly fundraising goal but in the week to 10 days before that it just sort of felt something and and you know what i mean it's it's really hard to quantify but um you know we were going down the street to go to the view and guys would just you know working guys would just stop p and say hey i know who you are and you just started to sort of feel that that something about him was starting to stick with him um we saw it in terms of attendance at events um, we saw it in terms of you know, people recognizing him on the street, but really with the CNN town hall, everything changed overnight. Um, and then it's like the next time I was in New York with him, it was like we saw these people on the street and it was like they'd seen the Beatles or something like that. They were just so <laughs> excited. And it's so crazy, you know, because this is a guy who really started out as obscure as you could get. Um, not a household mm-hmm. name. He's the mayor of a town of 100,000 people in uh, the industrial Midwest, not, uh, you know, some fundraising co- powerhouse, not someone who cut their teeth in Washington. 
Um, so when he took off, I mean, it was really noticeable because you sort of go from trying to check in at security uh, to go on the view and security is like looking hard at both you and Pete being like, what are you, what are you kids doing here? To then just getting whooshed through and people recognizing you. And it's so exhilarating. I mean, it, it, the payoff of that and that feeling um, is something I've never really had in politics before, but it was palpable. Um, but I would really say that the launch moment when everything really changed was at CNN Town Hall. When I woke up the next morning, it was like a whole new world. Well, and Liz, I was going to say on that two comments I wanted to make on two previous things you just said. You know, first of all, I certainly remember that watching that town hall and just thinking, you know, I mean, Mayor Pete's always been, you know, has had a good delivery on his message and has been, um, you know, is obviously incredibly intelligent, very charismatic. But when I saw him on that stage and the way he handled the questions and the way he presented, you know, he's never flummoxed. He always presents a very strong clear argument and a clear message on what he's trying to get across. And I think you can't really underestimate how hard that can be sometimes to find in a candidate or frankly, to find in anybody. Um, so I, you know, the, the CNN town hall was obviously something that stood out. And I remember watching him on Morning Joe. Um, right. And the Morning Joe interview was right around the time of the, um, of the CNN town hall. And the Morning Joe crew was just absolutely um, you know, astounded and so impressed by by him and, you know, his presentation. So those are two big moments that stood out to me. And the other thing I just wanted to comment on really quickly, Liz, before we go on to the next question, is I think it's, for our, for our listeners in particular, I think it's so interesting what you said about some of these campaigns, some of these candidates who have had, you know, upwards of 100, 200, you know, even more, potentially more staff who have been around them for a long time. I mean, Hillary Clinton is a prime example of somebody who has had a built-in network, who's been part of her, um, you know, her operation for a long time. You contrast that with somebody like Mayor Pete and, you know, to an extent, some of these other candidates on the, on the scene. Um, and, you know, this reminds me also of Barack Obama's campaign in 2008. He had such a small operation from his Senate. Um, that, you know, it was easier to come into a campaign like President Obama's into a more, um, you know, a senior level job or the job that you wanted, whereas the Clinton Network, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way because I'm so proud to be a part of the Clinton Network, but for me, when I started working on our campaign in 2007, it just felt a little bit different because even though I'd worked for the Clintons in the White House or President Clinton in the White House, it's still, you know, I wasn't part of her, you know, large group of, of people who had been working for her on and off for a long time. So I think that's an important distinction for some of our listeners who are thinking about getting on a campaign, perhaps. Sometimes it's good to look at people who have a smaller network of people because you'll be able to grow with that candidate for a long time. Even if that candidate doesn't go on to win, you will be part of that network as their future continues to evolve. But I want to go back. Oh, to, oh, totally. Yeah, and little. and just and one thing I I thought about was um, uh, another moment. So it's sort of funny is even with my family, you know, just looking at Thanksgiving, right? A few months before Pete announced his exploratory, they were like, "So what's his name again? And what town is he the mayor of?" To <laughs> go flash forward to March, you know, a couple weeks after the CNN town hall. And my sister is sending me photos of her of her little daughters who are in elementary school in, in Buttigieg shirts and saying, 
oh my God, you know, my daughter went to school today and told everyone, my my sister runs Pete Buttigieg's campaign. And I mean, it's just crazy that, you know, a, a, a 12-year-old kid is saying that. And also, for the record, I don't run his campaign, but it was cool that it went from something that was even obscure in my own family to having my 12-year-old niece, you know, bragging at it at her bragging about it at our private school in New York. That's, that's outstanding. That's it's a great story. Um, so Liz, as somebody who knows Mayor Pete pretty well, you've been working closely with him, as you mentioned, for the last three years. Tell us about Mayor Pete, the person. We know about Mayor Pete, the great messenger, the great orator, incredibly smart, incredibly talented. But tell, tell us what he's like in person. Is he, is he funny? Like, give us a, a snapshot of his personality. <laughs> yeah, well, and and I know that part of my job is to spin for him and, and paint the best picture of him possible. But the honest truth is that what you see is what you get with him. Um, there are no two Pete Buttigieg's. The, the public Pete is very, very similar to the private Pete. There are never going to be, you know, stories coming out in Politico with blind quotes of, you know, former staffers saying, you know, he's actually horrible in person. He's abusive. He yells at staff or whatever it is. Um, he is a uniquely kind and warm and intelligent person. Um, he is the calmest person I've ever met. I mean, so calm. I've been in elevators with him that have stopped. And, you know, I freak out. I drop to the floor thinking about what the obituary, obituary is going to say. And he's just cool as a cucumber. Um, but he's someone, yeah, he's a, he's a fun guy. You know, it, it's interesting because he's a contemporary of mine. He's only a year older. So he's someone I've gotten to know outside of work in addition to, you know, on the campaign trail and, you know, hung out with him over beers and cigars or playing um, board games in his living room with his two rescue dogs running all around. Um, so, you know, he, he definitely knows how to let loose and have fun, but I, I would just emphasize that he really is what you see. And I think that is pretty rare in politics because you, you always do think, okay, well, this is who you see publicly, but behind the scenes are going to be very different. And, you know, maybe behind the scenes, he's maybe shows a little more edge or, a, you know, a few more fangs sometimes than he does in, in public. But he really is. It's a, it's a boring answer, but he's, he is very similar. But he's someone who I count not only as a you know boss or client, he's someone I can I consider a friend and um, has been extremely supportive of me in my professional life as well as my personal life. It was um, one of the things I think both Adrian and I really respect about you is that you scrap for everything that you got, right? I mean, there, there are. I remember. I remember meeting you. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember meeting you like when you were on Dan Seals' congressional campaign back in 2007. Was that right? Is that I right? Do. Yep. Yep. Right. That's right. And you Dan know, Seals. That's right. That's right. Um, I remember him. And. and um, so, you know, you did that, you've done a number of presidential campaigns, you know, you've, you have, you know, you've really just sort of clawed your way, you know, like, and, and I think that's one yep. of the things in politics that, um, you know, that oftentimes a lot of people you see on television haven't done that. They're, they've done a campaign and then they're known as a democratic strategist. Um, right. So um, yeah. I, I think that's one of the things that I know that both of us really respect about you, the way in which you've really just clawed your way and really just worked for everything that you've got. And um, uh, and Pete's lucky to have you. And, and I'm just curious, like for those younger folks who are listening to this podcast, um, I'd love for you to take them 
behind the scenes on, you know, what is a typical day or an average day in Liz Smith's, uh, you know, life on the campaign trail? And there's nothing average about you, but like, what is, can you, can you just go through, you know, what time do you wake up? What do you do when you wake up? Like, take us through your day. Oh boy. Okay. Well, first of all, there is no typical um, day in my role and that's what makes it so fun and, and so right. rewarding for me. Um, I mean, the the only thing that is a constant day to day is that the first thing I do in the morning is I check Twitter for my news, right? Just to, and I mm-hmm. check to make sure that the president hasn't, you know, tweeted any crazy stuff overnight. Um, but otherwise, you know, it's like two weeks ago, I woke up in the morning in New York, took a train out to D.C., headlined two fundraisers for him in D.C., met him in Virginia in the morning to help prepare him for a MSNBC climate town hall. Then we went to flew to Cedar Rapids for an LGBTQ-focused uh, town hall, then drove down to Des Moines. Then we wake up in the morning, do the steak fry. I'm there just sort of helping him um, finalize the speech and uh, talk. To, and I'm also talking with the media there. Then we hop on the bus in Iowa and go all over Iowa for four days. And I'm, you know, sitting with him during the entire thing. We had 15 reporters on the bus. Then I, you know, get back to New York. Then two days later, turn around, hop on a plane to Austin to go meet him for a big public event he had down there, and then hop on a plane to San Francisco to lead his debate prep. So there is no typical day. Um, My job is not one uh, where I wake up in the morning, I go to an office, I sit behind a desk, I I have prescribed hours. Um, I keep very long hours. I keep very unconventional hours. Um, And I gotten to do a lot of these things on this campaign that I never expected to do, but that's what, that's what keeps it fun. That's what keeps it interesting. And it's not at all typical. I think of a, of a political, of a political staffer, but, um, or a political staffing role, uh, but keeps you on your toes. You've got to take a lot of things to boost your immune system. So you're not constantly sick. Um, Yeah. But yeah, that sort of gives you a sense of the, the wildness, you know, The craziest is, like, when we're doing some of these long stretches, is I have to write my hotel number, my hotel room number on my hand. Otherwise, there's no way I will be able to remember it. I'm lucky if I can remember, you know, the name of the town that we're that that I'm waking up on because you're my brain at this at this point just can't keep up with all that, you know. So um, there are pluses and minuses to it, but it it always keeps it interesting. Well, it always gets interesting, and and I, you know, my tactic, Liz, during the cam- during Hillary's campaign, when I started traveling a lot, especially the last few months, is I would always take a photo of my hotel room because, like you, I would never for- I would never remember exactly where my hotel room was and and whatnot. So, oh yeah, I, I know think that trick. Also, yep. yeah, that same trick, right? Although if your phone yep. dies, then you're in trouble on on both ends. Yep. So writing it on your hand yep. seems far smarter. Um, but I think that's what makes your job. It's got to make your job so fun because you do have a lot of leeway that, frankly, a lot of people, a lot of staffers on campaigns don't have. Even campaign managers, even, you know, communications directors or, you know, whatever other senior level jobs you want to talk about. I mean, the fact that you're able to go out there and really truly be a strategist, you're able to figure out what's the best use of your day, what do you need to do for Mayor Pete. Um, no day is the same. That is that is a um, it's kind of like a dream job on a presidential campaign. I feel like. Um, so oh, it is. A really good it situation is. there. But we have a lot of that's that's not very again to all of our listeners. That is not very traditional. But it's 
when you can find that job, it is an absolute dream because you are so busy, you are stretched so thin, but it makes your job that much more fun because you're actually using your own experience and your own, um, you know, your own, basically your own ideas based on that experience to help d- drive what your decisions are that day and what you're going to be focusing on that day. Um, right. And, right. and and the thing is, like, it's like you get burned out, but it's not from boredom. It's from doing too much and having too much fun, and there's too much excitement. Um, but it's not like I wake up and I'm like, God, I'm doing the same thing every day. And so bored. Why am I wasting my <laughs> – yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm grateful for that, at least. There's also very few – I mean, you know, and again, to particularly younger folks who are listening to our podcast, like, this is the type of job that isn't – I mean, you get it through hard work. <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah, I'm serious. Exactly. It's like, it's not like these, I mean, there's a reason why you have this trust, you know, Pete trusts you. There's a reason why you have this sort of, this portfolio. It's like, it's not because you just happened to, there was no job on some site that offered, you know, this was, this came from years of exactly. hard work and, and really yeah. scrapping for it. So I think folks, you know, like, when they're listening, that's, that's the importance of going, of doing campaigns, you know, and, and starting at a, you know, whether it's a congressional race and, you know, doing, doing a gubernatorial race and like making your way up because that you're in a position where you've done all this stuff. So you're a real asset to him because you've been through what, you know, he's, you've been through a lot of this stuff. So you're able to, you know, really provide him with great counsel and advice. Right. Yeah. No, it's exact. It's 16 years and, you know, 20 plus campaigns and a lot of knocking on doors, phone calls and all that stuff. So it's not like I woke up one morning and just had this job. So it is an important right. point to make for, for anyone listening. Yes. Millennials take notice. You can't just like walk into a campaign at age 23 and have a job like Liz. You've got to go out there and do the hard work, get the experience. Um, so I'm a millennial. Okay, well, you're like on the, you're like on in the very nice. I'm an old like millennial. Older in, you're like an old millennial. What do you call an yeah. old millennial? You call them elder right. millennials. An elder. elder. <laughs> I know. I'm, so I'm a sad. gen. I'm a Gen Xer. Doug and I are both Gen Xers, so you know we. Well, we'll, we well yeah, we'll go with the our, um, our, our generation. We're the lame Yeah. No, we're terrible. We're terrible. So, so Liz, I want to talk to you about your fundraising. I mean, Mayor Pete has continued to astonish so many people by having really incredible quarters. I mean, Q3 of the off year, the third quarter of the off year in any presidential cycle is a very difficult time to raise money because people are on vacations, people are traveling, they're sort of tuned out. It's Labor Day, um, which people have found plenty of ways to stretch Labor Day into like two or three weeks. It's kind of amazing. Um, but Mayor Pete still managed to raise over $19 million. Um, I look at this, I'm, you know, as, as a strategist, as a campaign veteran, I look at this as, okay, you know what? Mayor Pete is going to be in this for a long time. He's playing the long game. He's able to play the long game. I know you're not, um, you know, you're not on the field team. You're not on the delegate strategy team. But can you sort of talk about, just as, you know, maybe take off your Mayor Pete hat and just put on your overall strategist hat. I mean, tell us about the advantages of being in this financial situation that you guys are in today. And by the way, also fueled by small dollar donations and how this sort of distinguishes you from some folks, you know, I'm not trying to pit you, pit you guys against Joe Biden, but he raised less than you. And the average donation from his donors was significantly higher than Mayor Pete. So just talk about like how this, you know, 
puts you in a position to stay at this game for a long time. And I also get the feeling that you guys are not in this like Iowa or bust campaign mode, right? You're looking at, you're looking beyond the first four states. You're looking at Super Tuesday. You're investing in Super Tuesday states. Just sort of talk to me about, about that because it really is a distinguishing um, factor compared to um, the way some other campaigns are structuring their, um, their political strategy. Yeah. And let me just start with a, a quick disclaimer here, which is that the element of this campaign that I'm probably most surprised by is our fundraising. Um, you know, we started this campaign with an email list of of, of about 20,000 people. You know, we didn't really, we didn't have a, you know, a previous campaign account to seed our campaign. Um, he was not a household name, not a fundraising powerhouse, not known on the coast where, you know, realistically we raise a lot of money. And now we've raised, and, and this is funny, for our first quarter, we set an ambitious goal, goal of raising $1 million. Um, and thought, oh my God, this is going to be so <laughs> tough, really right? <laughs> and then in that first quarter, we ended up raising over $7 million. Um, and now to date, we've raised over $51 million from over 570,000 donors across the country. Um, Amazing. So, Yes, we definitely get the big donations, but this is clearly a campaign that is powered um, uh, by the grassroots and thrilled about. I never in my wildest dreams expected it to go this well, um, but it's not like we started this with some you know, fundraising behemoth or anything like that. Um, but what it means for us is that, you know, it's really hard in a, in a 20-way race to, to make a mark and to raise money and to be able to stay in there for the long run, right? Because there's a lot of staff, there are a lot of operating expenses that you have to have. And you can't just think in terms of, if I make it to Iowa, because if you just make it to Iowa, and, and you put all your chips in there, what happens the next day? Are you just going to shift all your staff over to mm-hmm. the New Hampshire and then all your staff over to South Carolina? And, um, and then all your staff to Nevada? And, and no, that that just that's just not practical, and we have avoided sort of the um, the strategy of putting all our eggs in one basket. You know, we've got I think about 130 staffers in Iowa, 65 staffers in New Hampshire, uh, 40 staffers in South Carolina and Nevada, and so we, so we're very much focused on the first four states because realistically you're not going to make it to super Tuesday unless you have good performances in those states. Um, And, you know, we've looked at expanding our staff a little bit beyond there, but that is where our focus is are are those first four states and making sure that uh, we put up a strong performance there, but we're realistic here. Um, We're in this to win this. And we know that it's not going to be through a herky jerky campaign where you're moving staff, you know, from one state to the next and sort of living state to state, you do have to have a long-term strategy and having a long-term strategy is dependent on having the resources to, you know, support a staff, to run ads, um, to uh, do all the sort of outreach you need to do. And that's the one thing that the $51 million uh, will help us do. And I'm, so it's crazy. I mean, we started with three staff, three, four staffers, and now we have over 400. Um, but we are very mindful of our resources as well. We don't we don't try to you know blow blow a hole in our budget, spend a lot on 
consultants or bells and whistles. And we try to always keep the sort of ethos that, that got us here of, of, of being frugal and mindful of, of the dollars we raise, but knowing that we need to marshal our resources to go all the way. By the way, I'm glad you talked about marshaling resources because there's nothing that drives me more crazy. And in full disclosure, I witnessed this and experienced this with other people on the campaign in 2008 than staffers who go in and make a lot of money off of presidential campaigns. It is not a place to get rich. If you're getting paid a lot of money on a presidential campaign, it usually means that you your campaign is not organizing its budget effectively. I mean, obviously, oh, people who make more yeah. money based on it. But it just drives me, I mean, it drives me absolutely crazy when I hear people saying, oh, I was offered you know, I don't know, $15,000, $20,000 a month for someone who I know does not have even close to that experience. It just, it kind of, it just like, if they, if they can't be yeah, a veteran, can, it drives me crazy. Yeah, I can assure you I am not uh, getting rich off this campaign. I'd be lucky if I broke <laughs> even off of this campaign. So, you know, for, for anyone listening, um, we are being very careful with our money and I appreciate your support and I will not be profiting off it personally. So, no, um, no, and I, and, and yeah, and we make a point out of that and, and it's part of, you know, Pete's ethos and the culture of this campaign that no one, no one's here to get rich. Hey, Liz, talk to us about the African-American vote and what the campaign is doing to, um, win over, um, African-Americans. I, I saw Pete down at, uh, Mayor Pete down in South Carolina for the Black Economic Alliance, and he had, I think, just released his uh, his Douglas plan. I think that was that's the name of the name of it. Um, but I, I'm just curious because you know there is you know there's obviously the Beltway chatter that he is you know that he's doing extremely well with you know college educated whites and liberals, but he's falling short with African Americans right now. Can you rebut that or just take us through your campaign thinking on this? I'm de we're definitely aware of that chatter, and it's something that we are working on uh, every day on this campaign. Uh, it's something that's personally important to Pete as the mayor of a diverse city. I think sometimes when people hear about South Bend, they think it's a college town, meaning that you know it's white and affluent, when the reality is it's a pretty diverse city. It's 40% non-white. Um, the median household income is uh, $20,000 a year. Uh, so this is something that he has experienced before, you know, when he came sort of out of nowhere to win the um, South Bend mayoral race. Um, and it's something that is very important to him. So the steps that we're taking um, to earn uh, the black vote are, you know, multiple fold. Uh, one, we have built and we are continuing to build a robust uh, outreach program uh, to the black community. Um, investing in staff, investing in, you know, experienced staff really to help get our message out and make sure, making sure that we are talking to every audience possible. Um, another thing that we're trying to do is, you know, make sure that we are elevating the issues of, of import to the black community. And I think sometimes when you look at presidential campaigns and certainly more in the past, I think this year is different, sort of saw presidential candidates going out and only talking to black audiences about black issues. But Pete will talk about his Douglas plan, you know, which is, you know, his comprehensive plan mm -hmm. to empower black America in the whitest communities in Iowa, as well as, you know, North Charleston, South Carolina. Um, 
and it's it's going to be it's it's gonna it's gonna take a lot of work. And he is not a household name. Uh, he is someone who has to earn the trust and earn every vote in the black community. And it's something that we are working on throughout through across various mediums. And another thing too that I think is important is that we always do make sure to. You know, in, in these campaigns, sometimes you just show a lot of love to the big media outlets or the mainstream media outlets, but making sure that we are also hitting up um, uh, me, black media outlets, both sm- large and small, you know, both national and local, um, so that we are finding every possible way to get our message out to the black community. Um, thanks. That, uh, you know, I, I think that, like I said, I, I was re- I was impressed when I heard him um, for the first time in person in South Carolina. Um, just wanted to go one um, in uh, to uh, the debates real quick. Uh, take us through the prep sessions for Mayor Pete. You're, we've got this next debate October 15th in, in Westville, Ohio. How are you getting them ready for it? Um, well, as you can imagine, debate prep for a 12-person debate stage is a lot more difficult and a lot more complex than for, you know, a traditional two-person debate stage. Um, so it doesn't really make sense, you know, to do the traditional thing where you have a full mock debate with with all these people playing the different roles and, you know, coming in dresses, you know, the opposition with all their lines. Um, but I'd say what we do is pretty traditional. We have got a tight knit group, uh, and it's all just about anticipating the questions that are coming your way, anticipating the attacks, and putting him up there with you know potential opponents that uh, he can either you know, draw favorable contrast with or be prepared for attacks from, um, and not over prepping as well. I think that sometimes is a problem. Is and voters can tell and and we can tell right when yes. someone goes up to yes. stage and all they have are these robotic program lines and what has been key to to Pete's success and Adrian you you talked about this at the top was that town hall which is that he was just he's a breath of fresh air he's something different mm-hmm. so it's very important to me um and I think it's very important to him that he never becomes you know a a product of consultants. He's never over, over prepped, over consulted, but um, you know, it's about, it's it, it is one other thing that is so tough these days about debate prep is that you used to have a news cycle. Like just think about 2012 or even uh, 26 before Trump, you would have a news cycle that would last a week. It would be normal with Trump. It's like during debate prep, I'll jump in and be like, well, he just tweeted this and it's like, Oh God. So this, this could dominate the debate tomorrow. And he, he throws such an X factor because he throws such a wrench into the sort of the news cycle Mm -hmm. that it it Mm -hmm. turns over so fast that these candidates today have to know, know such a, have such a broader depth of knowledge um, than and be quicker on their feet than people have in the past because of the way that Trump has, sort of made the news cycle revolve around him and become so chaotic. Um, but, you know, one thing we also try to do is just to have a little fun with it, you know, to to um, to make it an enjoyable process because spending all that time in, you know, windowless conference rooms and hotels in various cities can be a pretty draining process uh, and mm-hmm. certainly draining for the candidate. But we have a, we have a close, tight-knit crew um, and, you know, we try to keep it light. We try to have some fun. I, I usually am um, the one lobbing questions at him, and sometimes I'll uh, 
you know, I'll put a little spin in the questions or I'll have a little fun with the questions. Um, but <laughs> the, the, these debates are so unpredictable that, uh, you know, trying to game them out too much and trying to script answers or script moments, I think it's shown to not really pan out for candidates. So we don't do that. What we just try to do is figure out, you know, what is his best case, you know, and what are the best things about him that we need the American people to know? And how do we get that out there? But not in a cheap way, not with canned lines, not with made for TV moments, um, but just in a way that really elevates what's best about him. And I think what's what makes him you know, preferable to other candidates in the race. And yeah, it's a lot of drills and running through issue by issue. You know, what would you, what do you, what's your stance on North Korea or what's your stance on Medicare for all? But, but knowing that you got to be able to think on your, you got to let him think on his feet and, and go up there and, and make his own judgment calls and give him those sort of tools to do that. Yeah, Liz, two reactions to that. I, I What you just said was so fascinating about debate prep because I think you, it's almost like studying for a test, right? Where like from, like it sort of, it always reminds me of going back to college and studying for exams. If I over, if I overly prepared, then if I didn't perfect what I thought I had perfected the night before during my over preparation or the like, you know, three consecutive nights in a row, um, then it would, I would get upset with myself. I would get mad at myself and I would, end up doing worse on the test because I would put so much pressure on myself to remember that moment or to remember to, you know, memorize the perfect answer that I had in my head for something. On the flip side, of course, if you underprepare, if you're not completely up to speed on everything that Donald Trump is doing, all the news, along with all of your policies, then you can put yourself, you can get yourself into a, into a bind. But I do think some of these canned moments that we've seen in the debate, and I will, I will refrain from naming some of the candidates and some of the moments because these are people that I like and with, with teams who I admire, staff who I admire, but a lot of them did fall flat. They might have gotten an immediate sugar high from the moment, but they ultimately fell flat. And I think that's one of the things that people just love so much about Mayor Pete is that he keeps everything top line. He's got a very positive way of delivering his, his remarks. And the other thing, Liz, that I wanted to say is one of my very best friends went to Oxford with, um, with, with Pete when he was younger, before he was ever in um, elected office, when they were both students, and just said even then he just had this incredible ability to communicate, to deliver a message. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of Bill Clinton. People would say that about Bill Clinton back when he was in high school, when he was in college, law school, graduate school, that he just had this ability to communicate a message so effectively it's sort of one of those things where you when you've got it you've got it you've and got Liz, it he right definitely has it that's right he's got it well Liz yeah and, you're so and, and, busy. and yeah we don't want to take up much more of your time but but finish that thought no no and and that's just one other thing it makes my life so much easier is sometimes for these debates you have to spend so much time preparing you know and and getting a candidate prepared on the minutia of policy um Pete is not one of those candidates. He he knows what he believes. He knows the you know evidence behind it. He knows what policies he wants to support. So a lot of it is just making sure he's comfortable. Again, keep in mind this is someone who came, who went from being mayor of South Bend to sort of becoming a national name overnight. He's not someone who had spent a lot of these time a lot of time on the national debate stage. Um, so you know it's all about the comfort level, but it's not a lot of like this is what you need to say. It's just more you know, working through what the potential scenarios are and 
and, you know, frankly, sometimes preparing them for something a little gonzo and out there that could happen on stage. I love the Hunter S. Thompson reference. <laughs> gonzo journalism. Liz, Dad, um, do you have anything before, you want to add? Uh, yeah. Well, before we go, I just I had to mention that uh, I am uh, beating Liz in fantasy football right now. Oh, uh, barely. I'm projected to win. I'm projected to win. Um, uh-huh. I am beating her by uh, 20, I think, what, 25 points right now? Is that right? Right. Something like so, that. So, according, um, according to, the, to the projector, I have like a 51% chance of, of winning this matchup. I just need Odell Beckham Jr. to really perform tonight. Well, well, I'm looking at I, I, my projection has me at 52%. So. Oof. Oof. Yeah. So next time we have you on, which hopefully will be pretty soon, um, one of us is going to be able to talk shit to the other. And uh, okay, I'm well, hoping it's me, but uh, we are very happy. Um, we I think very Liz, happy to I have think you Liz on. is going to win this. Yeah. So. And, and also, you're never going to win a shit talking contest against me, just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fact. That is a fact. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, Liz, you're thank the you best. Guys. Good luck in the debate next week. Except it's fantasy. Okay. Bye, guys. Thanks, Liz. Bye. For my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, this is Doug Thornell, and this has been The Electables, and we'll catch you next time.